Hello and welcome to Governance Uncovered, a podcast by the Governance and Local Development Institute at the University of Gothenburg. This podcast is supported by the Swedish Research Council. In this episode of Governance Uncovered, Mohamed Dia Hamami helps us understand the current political situation in Tunisia and the discontent with President Kai Said. We should expect several other elections this year. That's what Said likes doing, and he already budgeted a huge amount of money, I think more th- four times more than the uh, budget for the last year. And so that may reveal how unpopular he is. Then we'll hear from Dr. Daniel Raichetto about what impact the FIFA World Cup in 2022 might have had on domestic politics in Qatar and its influence beyond. Sports serves as a tool of interconnectedness. So with sports, there are all the time international athletes here or representatives from sports governing bodies, politicians who watch the competitions, etc. So all of this connects Qatar with the rest of the world and by doing so also contributes to the national security. Finally, Ayab Saad talks about his recent study on declined marriage rates in the West Bank as one result of the economic shock caused by the closure of the Israeli labor market for Palestinian commuters in 2001. When this economic shock happens negative, it impacted the groom and also impacted the bride's family because the, the social norms surrounding the, the marriage ceremony is very rigid in terms of expenses. As this podcast was recorded via Zoom, the audio quality is at times not at its best. We do apologize for this and recommend you to have a look at the transcript if needed. Other than that, we hope that you enjoy the episode and don't forget to like, share and subscribe if you do. We'll start by covering the political crisis in Tunisia since President Said seized absolute power in 2021. Mohamed Dia Hamami, PhD student in political science at the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs, Syracuse University, joined GLD's founding director Ellen Lust to discuss the low voter turnout after the first round of Tunisia's parliamentary elections in December 2022, as well as the country's high unemployment rates and the general disappointment in president's side among Tunisians. A disclaimer is that this episode was recorded on January 23rd, before the second round of the parliamentary runoffs on January 29th. So I want to just start by recapping very briefly for those who aren't following Tunisia closely, the events probably since, you know, a couple of years in July, about a year and a half ago, I guess it would be, and up till now so that we can give a lay of the land for for the listeners. In the middle of the COVID crisis, as the number of deaths in Tunisia were at their top, President Isis Ayi decided to stage what we call a self-coup, meaning he deployed the military to prevent members of the parliament from joining the parliament, announced its temporary suspension, and then dissolved it a few months later. He also suspended parts of the constitution and suspended the entire constitution later. And since then, Tunisia has been going through a political crisis, an unprecedented political crisis, that was coupled later with an also unprecedented economic crisis. He suspended the constitution and then held a referendum, a constitutional referendum, right? And then recently held legislative elections 
as well, like parliamentary elections, which are notable because they had single-digit turnout and probably historically low turnout, not only for Tunisia, but, you know, but frankly, very globally, which suggests a real demobilization of the population. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you see that? Why do we see people turning away so strongly? It almost seems like there's almost nobody on board. What does that mean? Well, right after the coup, polls were showing that Daesh action had a very high level of support. But as you were saying, now the numbers are extremely low. Official polling data are banned, so the only way to know about the level of support is through the ballot. He got only 30% of the population to vote in the referendum on the constitution that he drafted unilaterally. But more recently in December, 8% only of the population showed up to the polls. And this has to do with several factors. The very first one is that Tunisians did not really support the coup initially because they wanted to, him to implement his alternative local project with no political parties. They wanted the crisis, COVID, to be over. And also they were expecting that he will bring the change that political elites ruled during the last years did not. In addition to that, the main factor that may have contributed to this very low level of turnout is the uh, massive disengagement of political parties who have been calling for boycott of the both the referendum and the elections and NGOs and civil society in general. Usually we see them participating a lot in the mobilization of voters. Same thing regarding the media. Usually the media focus on raising people's awareness on the importance of votes. And this time it was the opposite. People were talking much more about the problems with the new constitution, how Said has failed to present and to keep up with his promises. And in addition to that, there is a general discontent from politics. It's not only about reaction to calls for boycott. We can talk about a broken social contract. People had high expectation after the revolution and every time someone comes and promised to deliver and, and then fail. And Said was the last one, and that's why we, we're probably seeing such an unprecedented level of turnout. And in addition to that, we can even talk about the sudden increase of intentions of migration is reflected in the polls as well. That exceeds the numbers we are used to see in Latin American countries where there are usually concerns about migration. All these factors reflect one major phenomenon that goes across the elites and the masses, which is a large defection of everyone from the political system. You're right. I mean, if you talk to Tunisians, right, one of the things that comes across is the both the interest in leaving, right, which you've pointed to, and that seems to come across different classes. It's not only the poor or what we might think of as kind of Latin American migration, but really people who have done quite well in the past also see very little future and have become very disenchanted. But also, you know, this kind of this continued concern about the economy and the failure of it to, to really bounce back or rejuvenate. But I want to focus just a few more minutes on the political changes and sort of this notion of disbanding parties, of having kind of politics without parties. Often we think of parties as being the engines of mobilizing voters, of mobilizing political support and support in platforms. 
Obviously, that's not always what they do in, in the Middle East, and we're very well aware of that. But to what extent do we understand where mobilization and political actors, who was supposed to take that role, I guess is my question. Expecting anyone to take that role. He's an expression, the intermediary bodies, and Al-Shamal Wasita in Arabic. His term that is used among his supporters, his close uh, allies, to describe any organization, like unions, civil society organizations. And they think that all these organizations are corrupting democracy. They think that the people should be able to have an ac direct access to institutions and should not be manipulated by these intermediary institutions. So we should get rid of them. And we find some of these ideas, in fact, in some interpretations of Rousseau, which is the idea of the general will that in order to have a true democracy, we need people to go and vote directly without having their minds brainwashed by people who want to advance their own corporatist interest. And so Saeed is coming from this perspective of believing in a democracy that would work without any uh, intermediary institutions. So a rational autocrat would, first of all, develop a political party to, be, to control the masses or to distribute goods or to co-opt elites. But he's ideologically against that. And that's why we're not seeing anyone taking the place of political parties or civil society organizations. It's very interesting. And we also are perhaps seeing that this notion that people will directly engage doesn't work as well as we might expect, right? That we're not seeing a lot of direct engagement of the Tunisians in the democratic processes and practices, right? Partly disenchantment, but partly also a lack of, of mobilizing bodies. Both of those could potentially help to explain the differences we see across the country. Obviously, the voting turnout is very low across the country, right? So when you're looking at less than 10% of the voters coming out, we don't expect that there's going to be huge, huge populations voting anywhere. Of course, GLD is very interested in understanding local variation, so I have to ask you, to what extent do we see differences across Tunisia in terms of engagement, attitudes towards Saeed to the extent that we can see them in other ways of understanding where there might be pockets of support among pretty massive disenchantment. It's difficult to see variation because of the very low level of turnout, but there are a few indicators. For example, in Saeed's neighborhood in Nihla, the level of turnout was around 5% only, which is a half of the general turnout, and it shows that even with his personal presence, in fact, he showed up after a visit abroad, I think it was Saudi Arabia, that he showed up to show to, to support the, one of his candidates' campaign, and he did not get more than 5%. So that's a factor. But also another indicator that might be useful is the number of candidates by district. In the main districts in, in the greater Tunis, in Lagoulet or Tunis 1 or Tunis 2, we see an extremely low number of candidates. In fact, one of the oldest parts of Tunis, there was only one candidate who was elected automatically. But at the same time, in historically marginalized, both economically and politically regions, such as Gasrin or Janduba, we see an extremely high number of candidates in small districts. And that leads to a division of votes and makes the election very competitive. It's still not clear why we see that. This may have to do with the resilience of some of Saeed's network support. 
but we need to wait for the second round of the election to see if these patterns are persistent and if there is any variation across the country. Yeah, and I want to end on the issue of the next elections, which are the 29th. And this may end up airing right after the elections, but do we see any differences in terms of the regime strategy moving into those elections? Is there an attempt to really try to get people to come out to vote? I mean, it's a bit embarrassing, the, the low turnout and the, the resounding disinterest in the last election round, right? So do we see differences in terms of mobilization efforts from the regime this time? I'm not sure if mobilization is the most appropriate word in this case because the regime is not really using any of these intermediary institutions. But the Electoral Commission is deploying a new strategy to bring more attention to the candidates. They think that the reason why Tunisians did not go to the ballots the last time is because they don't know the, who the candidates are. So they are organizing debates between them that are broadcasted every day in the main national television. But I'm not sure if this is effective. And also they started broadcasting them this week, which is very late. I don't think that it's possible to create mobilization in the last few days before the election. So there is no momentum. It's really difficult to believe that we may see a very huge difference between the first round and the second round. But also, it shows how the regime is really struggling to understand why the level of support is extremely low. So I know you don't have a crystal ball, and I'm not asking you to predict the outcome of this election, but if you're looking forward, what are your expectations, or what do you think are the things to really pay attention to when we're thinking about where Tunisia is headed? So we should expect several other elections this year. That's what Saeed likes doing, and he already budgeted a huge amount of money, I think more th four times more than the uh, budget for the last year uh, to run these elections. And so that may reveal how unpopular he is. In addition to that, regarding the composition of the parliament, we will probably end up with a parliament, compo very fragmented parliament with people, no consistent ideologies and where decision-making would be difficult. But there is a, an important pattern that we will probably notice that the majority of people who are getting elected seem to be from similar background, mostly public officials coming from positions in the executive, meaning the executive has a leverage over them in their career. Most of them may not be re-elected in the future, so that also should be taken in consideration. We know already that that kind of background, middle class, state-dependent middle class is not the most democratic, and this factor may contribute to the weakening of the parliament and the strengthening of the executive. I suspect that you're right. It's, of course, depressing for Tunisia and Tunisians I think it's depressing for many people who've watched the, the region kind of more generally, right? Everybody's talked about it, but Tunisia had been the, the bright light of democracy in the post-2011 or the post-Arab uprising period. And seeing it struggle and seeing the, the difficulties, and particularly in a kind of a global climate where there's not a lot of attention paid and not a lot of resources and energy being put into, into support, I think is also very, very difficult. So I wish you and, and all Tunisians actually all the best. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. When recording this, it's been about six weeks since the FIFA World Cup in Qatar ended. But what impact did the tournament have on domestic politics and its influence beyond Qatar? 
GLD colleague and football fan Thabit Jacob met with Dr. Daniel Raichetto to discuss the politics of sports, focusing on last year's World Cup in Qatar. Daniel is a visiting associate professor at Georgetown University in Qatar. He has co-edited two books which came out recently. The first one is Qatar and the 2022 FIFA World Cup Politics, Controversy and Change. And the second one is the Handbook of Sport in the Middle East. Daniel, welcome. Good to have you on the show. Thank you, Zabit, for having me. So let's start by discussing the controversy around the World Cup in Qatar. I mean, the tournament was marked by controversy around a number of issues, you know, from poor treatment of migrant workers, Qatar's human rights record, concerns about LGBT rights, among other things. We saw teams like Germany and, and Denmark very vocal about these things. Some people were accusing Qatar of spot washing its authoritarian image. In a piece you wrote last year, you stated that all this was hypocrisy and, and double standards. Could you say more on this? Yeah, I mean, we need to differentiate between sport specific and general political concerns. When it comes to sport specifics, critics, then one issue certainly is that the World Cup for the first time took place in winter, at least in like the European winter for some other people in the southern hemisphere, it was their summer. But so it interrupted like major leagues like the, the British Premier League. Then there were accusations of corruption in the bidding process. But I think it's important to mention that there were in all uh, World Cups for the last 30 years, including the one in my home country, Germany, 2006, accusations of corruption. And I think the problem is that uh, there was a very small group of people, the FIFA Executive Committee, comprised of 24 mainly uh, old men who would make such a major decision who's becoming the next World Cup host. So systems where few people make major decisions are tentative for corruption. So I don't know what happened specifically around this bit, but again, we had like discussions about corruptions with, with like all previous World Cups. And maybe one positive legacy of this World Cup is also that uh, after the controversial awarding of the World Cups to Qatar and Russia 2018-2022, FIFA changed its entire governance system and future World Cup hosts uh, will be selected by the entire FIFA General Assembly. So not anymore by 24 members of the FIFA Executive Committee, now by all 211 FIFA member states. Everybody has one vote, which I believe will be a system where a corruption will less occur than in the past. Then, of course, we also have some broader political issues. And after Qatar was awarded the World Cup in December 2010, one big issue became the situation of the migrant workers in Qatar who built here the entire infrastructure, the living and working conditions of them became a major issue. But also other issues like, like women's rights, like LGBTQ, etc. What maybe was not always fairly communicated to global audiences is that many of these issues are not Qatar-specific. They occur in the entire region. For example, the Kafala system, which human rights organizations would describe as a system of modern-day slavery. This is a golf thing and not a Qatar thing. So, but I think, yeah, that were like uh, uh, the, the critical issues that have been discussed in the lead up to the World Cup 2022. Great. So it's good to know that, as you say, that at least this controversy have kind of inspired reforms within FIFA. So we're going to see a more transparent process going forward. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So let's discuss another thing which kind of really became an important topic. And this is the issue about the World Cup 
as a catalyst for domestic reforms in Qatar. A lot of people have been saying that the World Cup somehow kind of helped to, to reform Qatar in some ways. I mean, this is a very small country, famous for its LNG industry, is among one of the world's top natural gas producers. It's also known for things like Qatar Airways. But apart from that, this is a country that is not known very well. Has the World Cup changed the country in some ways? Yeah, I think it did. But to be fair to Qatar, not everything that's changing here in the country can be related to FIFA. So Qatar started to change already in the mid-1990s. There was a leadership change in the early 1990s. Qatar started to export liquefied natural gas in the end 1990s. So when we look at Al Jazeera, the groundbreaking media network, at, at Qatar Airways, at Education City, where I work, all of this was set up in the 1990s, so it cannot be linked to FIFA. Uh, but certainly when the World Cup was awarded to Qatar in December 2010, as this put a spotlight on uh, Qatar and shed light specifically uh, on the situation of the uh, migrant workers. And human rights groups, international media would report about the situation. And uh, even the Emir last year in a big interview with the French newspaper admitted that the situation was not great and changes were needed and that uh, spotlight helped to, to do changes. And certainly one could argue that some of the changes took too much time. But particularly in the last two years, we have seen a, a plethora of, of reforms and, and, and social changes. So the kafala system was dismantled. So the ILO, the International Labour Organization, says not abolished, it says dismantled. Why? So because the sponsorship system is in serious still in place, but now one can change jobs without needing the approval of the employer. And one can leave the country without needing an exit permit from the employer. So that are two major changes. Then the first minimum wage in the region was introduced. And very important also since 2021, outside work is not permitted anymore in the summer months. So there was already a rule in place before, but it was extended now from early June until mid of September. Outside work is not permitted anymore from 10 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. So all of this are certainly groundbreaking changes that also set new standards here in this part of the world. Great. So it looks like change has already been underway in so many ways. Certainly. But of course, it remains now to see how sustainable these changes are. But I think that Qatar's motives to do these changes are not changing. So I expect them to continue and even to improve. Great. Let's chat a little bit about football and, and sport in general as a foreign policy and geopolitical tool. So we know for many years Qatar has been using its rich energy resources, oil and gas in particular, as a vehicle for promoting its foreign policy and, and geopolitical ambitions. But Qatar left OPEC in 2018. OPEC is the Organization for Petroleum Producing Countries. It looks like sports is, is emerging as an important geopolitical tool. You know, I think the, the performance of the Qatari national team was very poor on the pitch. But it looks like Qatar secured some really important geopolitical wins throughout the tournament. Could you say more? <laughs> yeah, I think Qatar is certainly doing better in international affairs as a state than its national football team at the World Cup. But sport was used from the very beginning as a domestic and foreign policy tool. So Qatar hosted its first international sporting event in 1993 when an ATP men's tennis tournament took place in Qatar. So there is now a pass of like 30 years of uh, international sporting events in the country. And there were always two motives. 
first of all, to contribute to domestic development because all the infrastructure that has been built now, the metro, the airport, the port, etc., none of this because of the World Cup. The World Cup just set a timeline to accomplish it. The major goal of Qatar is to become an advanced country by 2030. That's a goal stated in the Qatar National Vision. That's one. But it's also a foreign policy tool. Qatar is a small state. And for small states, what matters is visibility in international affairs. Without sport, nobody would know Qatar. And Qatar is also vulnerable because it cannot defend itself. It's surrounded by two big, powerful countries, Iran and Saudi Arabia. And sport serves as a tool of interconnectedness. So with sports, there are all the time international athletes here or representatives from sports governing bodies, politicians who watch the competitions, etc. So all of this connects Qatar with the rest of the world and by doing so also contributes to the national security. Mm, fascinating. I mean, it was really fascinating to see during the opening game between Qatar and Ecuador when there's this photo of the Emir of Qatar together with the President Erdogan and President Sisi of Egypt. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I mean, there were a number of high-ranking politicians here. We did not witness a diplomatic boycott as at the Winter Olympics in China, for example. But it's not just at the World Cup. We also see at other events that took place. You know, for example, I'm a handball fan. I'm from Germany. I remember 2015 when the Handball World Cup was here. There was a governor from my state in Germany here. So, yeah, there are always uh, politicians, members from international federations here around sporting events. And uh, certainly sport is also a diplomatic tool and a tool for engagement. Finally, let's talk a little bit about the legacy of the 2022 World Cup for Qatar. Again, in, in terms of football, the World Cup will be remembered for, for so many things. One would say, for instance, Messi cemented his position as the greatest player of all time. You know, Morocco becoming the first African and the first Arab nation to reach the semi-final of the World Cup. But for Qatar, you know, what will be the legacy of the World Cup? You mentioned already some important events at the World Cup. I would also add... Uh win from Saudi Arabia against Argentina, the later world champion. And what was remarkable is that on the day afterwards, uh, Qatari Emir was wearing a Saudi scarf. And it's remarkable since there were just until one and a half years ago a blockade from Saudi against Qatar. So this will hopefully contribute to better relations in the future. And I think for Qatar, the main legacy as a small state is that it's now on the map. Everybody knows now Qatar. It's a state that is punching far above its weight in international affairs, not only because of the World Cup, also because of other developments like last year helping to evacuate refugees from Afghanistan and now some Western embassies having relocated from Kabul to Doha, contributing to other countries' energy security with state-owned companies we mentioned before like Qatar Airways, Al Jazeera, a Qatar Foundation. So... I think the legacy is that Qatar is known all over the world and that it shows that a state, a small state can punch far above its weight and be an influential actor in international affairs. But we also see a shift from what means periphery and center in international affairs, both in sport and in politics in general. And this has been also like a global South world support for Qatar, not only in the Arab world, but also in many countries of the global world, global South, who are proud that a small state from the global South, a young country that just you know starts to, started to develop in the last 30 years, is capable of hosting such a big event. Thanks a lot, Daniel, for this conversation. We will include some of the pieces you've wrote in the notes for our audience to check them out. But really... Perfect. 
Really great to have you and, and thanks for this conversation. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much. The effects of a negative shock on male marriage in the West Bank. That is the title of Ayab Saad's recent paper that we will cover as our last segment for this episode. Ayab is an associate professor of economics at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies. And in this paper of his, which is co-authored with Amr Ragab, marriage rates among young men in the West Bank are compared before and after the sudden closure of the Israeli labor market for Palestinian male commuters from the West Bank in 2001. Ella last met with Ayab to talk about how the economic shock following the labor market closure has affected the decision to get married for both men and women, and also how social norms play a part in the declining marriage rates. Thank you, Ayab, for joining us, and I'm glad to be able to talk to you about a paper that's been recently published in the Review of Economics of the Household, and that I understand published with Professor Ragab. Is yes, that correct? It's called The Effects of Negative Economic Shock on Male Marriage in the West Bank. And in it, you're taking a look at how the closures of 2001 in Israel and Palestine affected not necessarily just the economy, but really also affected kind of social institutions and social expressions and and marriage particularly. And so I want to start by just asking you to explain a little bit why we might expect that economic shocks or closures would have an impact on marriage. Yes, great. So this idea of economics and marriage has been floating for, for a while right now and started with uh, the famous economist, the Chicago economist Baker. Mm-hmm. And he has a theory of marriage, actually. And basically, economists say we can use economic theory to study anything we want. And many economists call it even marriage market. To give it a sense like, you know, the decision to, to marry is just like any other decision, whether to invest or not. The idea started, you know, whether we want to get married or not depends on the benefits of getting married. If the benefit is larger than staying single, so you go ahead and, and get married. And basically, the idea revolved around the division of labor. Okay. The marriage involves some division of labor or specialization. Who's going to stay home? Who's going to take care of the kids? And who's going to go and earn income to, to be the, the supporter of the, the family? So the kind of economic shock will change the benefit of this division of labor. If we have a negative economic shock that impact the male income, for example, so males become less attractive in this equation, right? So the females say, right now, I cannot specialize, for example, or stay home because males that are not good earners, they cannot support me if I stay home. So this might change the benefit of getting married. So this is like a kind of a simple intuition of the economic theory of marriage. I hope it's clear. No, it is. And okay. I think what's important about it is it goes beyond just a notion of can you afford the celebration? Because that's not what you're really talking about. Yes, that's, that, that's, that's completely. So this yeah. is the classical model, the classic model of marriage. And here it mostly applies to advanced kind of its muscle. Because we think about the flavor. So there is an assumption that both women and men. And we can see this, the labor force participation for women in the U.S. or Europe is really high. Applying this theory in the MENA region, for example, Middle East, is a little bit tricky. Why is that? Because when you look at the labor force participation for women, it's really very low. So women aren't working, so I'm not sure whether we can use this notion of specialization of division of labor. 
And so what you're doing in this case is you're looking at the 2001 closures and you're using that as a way to think about how communities, though, might be differentially impacted by the closures themselves, right? So let's start by just thinking about why you have some variation in the level of economic shock. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so that's a great question. We thought right now to test the relationship between economic conditions and marriage. It's not as easy as it looks. Because people are like, you know, concerned about causality. So we need to find a good way to understand which detectates which or where the causation goes from. Mm-hmm. Is it from market to marriage or from marriage to, to income? So this is kind of the basic yeah. idea. So sometimes it's hard to come up with a clear identification. We call it if I'm allowed to use the economic <laughs> jargon, right? The idea we started with in 2001, the second intifada started. So for people who don't know what Second Intifada is, the Palestinian uprising against the Israeli occupation following the then Prime Minister Sharon visit to Al-Aqsa. So it started as peaceful uh, demonstration and then erupted to one of the most violent episodes between Israel and Palestine. What happened basically, because you know, the West Bank, the economy there is relatively poor compared to the Israeli economy. So for example, right now, the GDP for Palestine is $3,000, around $3,500. The GDP in Israel is around it's 10 times, 15 times more than this. You can understand this is a huge, large economy that's dominating a very small economy. So most of the people, most Palestinian workers used to work on a daily basis just to commute to work in Israel and they go back overnight to, to the West Bank. So that's why you call them commuters, because, you know, they go work and then they go back. Before the second, if around 30, 45%, sometimes up to 40, 40% of labor force in Palestine work in Israel. So that's, you can imagine, like the number I think reached 100, even before that was in 1999, 100,000 workers, Palestinian workers working on a daily basis in Israel. Right, and going back and forth and going back on and a forth daily basis. Day. Basically, you yeah. know, they're just close to each other. Yeah. So Israel decided after the uprising to close the border. Palestinian workers aren't allowed to work in Israel anymore. Overnight, the number of Palestinians working in Israel dropped from 100,000 to around 10, 15,000. Wow. That's around the first quarter of 2001. So obviously, this is a huge shock. It's shock like in terms of labor markets. You just destroy the labor markets. Many people lost their job and lost their income. So that's why we call it negative economic shock or mm-hmm. a negative income shock if you want. So the question is, we could just do simply, like, you know, start looking at the marriage rate in Palestine, in the West Bank. Before, after. The, you know, just yeah. over time. You say, yeah. oh, over time. So this is, if we see some decline in the marriage rate, this because of the closure. But that's not 100% right, because many things can change over, over time. Education, how people think about marriage, you know, there is a declining by strength worldwide. Right? Yeah, worldwide. Even without disclosure, the marriage rate might be declining. Right. So that's why I'm saying it's tricky sometimes. You just say, yeah, look, but there is something we can explore here. We've noticed that if you look at the localities, like labor localities or villages, if you wish, in the West Bank, we've noticed that their exposure to the Israeli labor market varies a lot. What I mean by exposure is some localities, some villages used to send like 80, 90% of their labor force, their workers to Israel. Some localities did almost in no money because why? For, for different reasons, mainly geographical reasons, networking, and so on. Then there is a differential effect of the disclosure on the localities. 
It didn't impact everybody in the same way. So the way we start thinking about it, we have two almost identical localities in terms of marriage rate. They don't have to be the same or trends, not necessarily the same level, but the trend is the same before, maybe is declining in the same way. And suddenly after this closure, the trends start diverging. So it must be because of this, of this closure. And this is exactly what we did. And we start comparing these localities, the marriage rate across these localities before and after the shock. And one good thing to mention that why we study this marriage on male, not female, I think, and this is the, the question was, we got many, many times. So one reason is that, you know, most commuters are male. 98, 99% of commuters, Palestinian commuters who work in Israel are males. And they're younger than the rest of the, the labor force and less educated. So we say, you know, this is a major economic or negative income shock for a certain type of workers, young, mm-hmm. male, uneducated workers. Which nicely is your marriageable population. Yes, 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 exactly. So that's one thing. The second thing, it's a a bit technical. It was very hard to study this for female marriage for two reasons. First, in the Palestinian communities, like when when female marriage, most likely they move across. The, Mm. The marriage migration is high. So we cannot treat localities as separated, isolated localities. There will be a slip spill over. But this is not the case for the male marriage. Mostly male, when they get married, they stay in the same locality and sometimes the same household. And the second reason, like, you know, some policies, Palestinian authorities started to adopt after the closure because they want to absorb a large number of unemployed people. They start expanding the public sector. So this expanding of public sector, in fact, benefited women more than men in terms of employment. So we have a high level of education for women, but low labor force participation. When the Palestinians start targeting, expanding the public sector, this benefited educated people more because they wanted more teacher and the health system and so on and so on. There were some, a certain cutoff of education they asked for to be eligible. This increased the labor force participation for female. They're becoming more economically independent, empowered. This might reduce the marriage rate among them for reasons unrelated to the closure. Right. At the same time, we know they face competitions from retail commuters. So we don't know how also this impacted the wages for the whole economy and this general equilibrium effect. So it was a little bit tricky to identify the effect of the closure per se on, or to isolate this effect from other factors that might impact on this. Interesting. I mean, and also, I think, particularly interesting thinking about how things like the closure differentially impacted men and women and how the mechanisms underlying why women might decide to get married may be different from those affecting men. This is where our mechanism comes in at play. And we think this is what I think makes our paper kind of interesting. We talk about the social norm surrounding the marriage and how rigid it is. And also about the decision of getting married for male and female in the, in the West Bank. So the paper studies marriage from 2001 up to 2006, around 10. So we have also extended analysis. This is around like, you know, maybe let's say 10 to 15, 20 years ago. And I'm pretty sure like the situation was much different than today. Marriage is still, but it was even more kind of in a traditional way. So mostly men will propose. Yes, women will have a say, but, you know, still the family is involved in that decision. 
heavily involved, I would say, right? And this depends on whether you live in a rural or urban place. Mm -hmm. Even a rural, it's more, it's a family decision, especially with this low labor force participation for women, right? So they are economically dependent on their family. When this economic shock happens negative, it impacted the groom and also impacted the bride's family because the, the social norms surrounding the, the marriage ceremony is very rigid in terms of expenses. And we, we check this like, you know, kind of the, the wedding costs are really huge. And they didn't go down. To our shock, they didn't go down. So, you know what? The expectations so it, stayed the yeah, same. Ex yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we're seeing, you know, right now, people who got affected, they cannot afford it. This might be yeah. one reason why they're not getting married. But the other reason is saying, okay, but maybe the family right now, they have interest in reducing these costs, accepting a less lavish like wedding ceremony or whatever cost and, and so on, and to marry off kind of their, their daughters. But we, can't, we didn't see this. If this was happening, we wouldn't see this huge effect of shock on marriage. And what we found, we found really the marriage rate really declined after the shock. So community that were very exposed Raya experienced a larger decline in marriage for males compared to the, to the other communities. And I think what's, what's interesting here is we're using social norms as a mechanism to explain why there is impact of this economic shock in addition to the traditional theory, classical theory of economics. And I think what's also interesting in our paper, if we want to compare this to other studies, there are paper studies that have done almost the same thing their economic shock is coming stemming from the variation in rainfall mm -hmm. in Africa and East Asia. And what they find that under negative economic shock, marriage rate will actually will decrease in Africa because those societies, the marriage tradition is, is a kind of a bride price. Okay. So it's a transfer from a groom's family to the bride's family. The same negative shock will have opposite effect on marriage, will increase marriage rate in societies dominated by dowry, where the, the bride's family pay, pay the cost or pay money or transfer money to the, the groom's family. In Africa, they find that the marriage rate increased. In Asia, it declined. So in we, Asia, it declines? Yes. Okay. So okay. when we have a bride price, it will increase. We found the opposite. Even in, in this society, we have pride price, but a negative economic shock actually decreased the marriage rate. And do you think that's in part because of the policy that ends up absorbing a lot of the women? I mean, because I'm trying to think of what explains that. We still have the same kind of interest potentially of the family to marry yeah. off at a yes. lower price, which should make the marriage increase. I mean, that's the African example, Exactly, right? some African, yeah. exactly. Why our results are different. Yeah even though we still have some aspect of the some surrounding similar norms. similarities yeah. in norms. So, okay, when we talk about norms, marriage norms, we cannot utilize in one single aspect, which is right, price prices, or dowry, yeah. right? Yeah. And seeing like in our society, the nature of the mahar, this is the, what we call the bride price mm -hmm. in, in Islamic tradition. In our society, in West Bank, we've noticed it's very, very small. It's almost insignificant. Yeah. It's sort of so symbolic where, often. Yes, more where, than where the costs yeah. come from, it's not even they're not transferred from the wedding ceremony cost itself. Okay. And we found this is very rigid. And why was it rigid? Because, you know, this is something 
everybody can notice, everybody can see. So it's a symbolic of the social status of the Kurun families and the Price family. So both of them were reluctant to accept something less than the law. You know, I think it goes beyond your paper, but one interesting distinction that I've noticed has been that in many African societies and communities, wedding costs are borne by a much larger set of people, right? So they set up wedding committees, and the wedding committees may be friends, and they may be influential people, and who you can get together to sort of help contribute to paying the wedding costs. I've never seen that in the Middle East. I mean, I may be missing it, but it does seem like it's much more the nuclear family and maybe a few who help out to do it, but not this kind of broad committees I, that yeah, that contribute. I agree. Yeah. I, and what's interesting to me, because I was in Palestine in the second intifada, there were many calls to reduce that wedding cost. Oh, interesting. Many people explicitly okay. discussed. And just, okay. You know, yeah. you know, we need to reduce the cost. It's really, you know, prohibitive cost right now. Among everything going on, the economy mm-hmm. is experiencing negative GDP uh, growth. And the costs were so rigid. Interesting. And what's interesting to me over time right now, when I go there and see, I've seen all. Even though people not really discussing this explicitly, you see some kinds, some people right now, some variations. Okay. Some okay. people some can people choose to, take, to yeah. not exactly follow the norm in terms yeah. of uh, uh, ceremony and celebrations. Mm-hmm. This was uh, really interesting to me to see, like, even though people tried very hard during the, the shark to reduce it, to change it, and it was very rigid, but right now it was changing by itself. And for me, as I said, why this is, I like this paper, we kind of opening a new door to look at the impact of the Israeli dominance over like, the economy of Palestine. So actually, this is my second paper in this kind of area. The first paper did the same thing about education. I want to see how disclosure impacted education. I also use the economic theory. I thought, you know what? Before the closure, high schoolers can just drop out from high school and go and earn a wage that's four or five right. times the wage they could earn. Even by going to Israel, yeah. they can age like a, a twice as much as if they just go to college and graduate and get a job in the West Bank. So this is a kind of increase up in the cost of education. We noticed that after the closure, the high school dropout actually declined. Because right now, you know, the opportunity cost of, of education declined. You cannot afford right now to go to just, you know, quit. And I would presume particularly among men, right? Because, yes. Well, because, and we did the same kind of strategy yeah. and comparing localities yeah. with... Yeah, we didn't see large effect of, of exposure on, on women. And yeah. women. Because, you know, it's, it's kind of stable. Um, and this is actually surprising to all scholars who work in the region. And I think even they call it uh, some paradox, I forget the name. It's why we have a high level of women education, but very low, very low labor force, female participation. Yeah. But yes, the education for women was kind of stable. My theory on why the women stay in school is because they don't have the benefit of dropping out and then getting a job. They're not going to do better as yeah. your sort of young men do in Israel. They have the most freedom by going to school and coming back, particularly by going to university. If I'm a woman and I'm not yet married, then for me, it's much more interesting to go to university, hang out with my friends, come back in the evening than it is not to go. So it almost feels like for women, education has a whole set of benefits to it that for men it doesn't. It has nothing to do with a future stream of income because you're educated. It has everything to do with a present 
enjoyment of life that while I'm waiting for a proposal, let me go hang out with my friends as, at the university and spend some time. I cannot agree. That's, that's one plausible explanation, actually. I mean, and it's right. We, we know that. It is, yes, education provides something else more than just a career, a future career for... Right, more the knowledge in the classroom. Even, yeah, even providing the opportunity to meet their future husband. In this traditionally closed society, it's conservative, where pre-marriage relationship is prohibited. So maybe this is a venue just to get to know people around you. And people are more tolerant when it comes to the kind of relationship, not in in the U.S. definition, but like Western definition, through educations or colleges. What is exciting and interesting is to think about both these questions of how different sets of social norms, whether we're talking about dowries or whether we're Mm -hmm. talking about the role that women and men can play and whether they can travel to work in Israel or not. But also that, like we just said, I mean, that getting education, going to university or getting married can mean very many different things to people, right? And keeping that kind of in the forefront of our minds, I think, is very useful. I agree with you. And might be, mean also very different things for their parents yes. as well. Yeah. So, and I think, you know, a lot of times when, say, if you're thinking about development practitioners, they're trying to find programs to increase education or to... There's a lot of, of these factors that really need to be thought about and taken into account. Always studying like culture, putting in economics, and this is something very hard. I mean, that's what we're doing here, political culture. Also, you can see, like, to me, is the one million question right now is this causation issue, yeah. <laughs> which is causing which. And it's right. obviously, like, Dr. Azmi has a strong opinion, it's the other way around, having to worry. Mark kind of also he's playing around it, like, sometimes, like, controlling for elections. Yep. saying supporting Dr. Azmi but the other part of the talk say these are the families that support democrats so it is kind yeah. of no, tricky it's a hard one yeah. it's a really hard one and we don't know what the confounded factor is I mean this is the question as applied economists or social scientists this is now the question I keep asking myself how can we test this we know we can do the RCTs but that's right. not but what does that mean but yeah. beyond that if I don't want to do RCTs what are the confounded factors right. that can like control for and help me you know kind of get close to this position story. Yeah. But and even uh, if you're doing RCTs, I mean, what do these things mean, right? I mean, like, you know, so I, can, I can change, I can change a factor. I can, you know, have a program where some people are randomized exactly. in and some people aren't. But, you know, what is still, like, under, underlying it, what's the real mechanisms exactly. that are causing things are often not necessarily... Yes. I, I agree with you. Yes, yeah. it's very hard to generalize now, I just want to thank you so much for taking time to talk to me and for meeting me. And also the great work and, and a fabulous institute that you have all created yeah. here. It's, it's really wonderful. Thank you so. for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. It's thank almost you. nice when you talk about our research, right? <laughs> you is. feel they are alive, yeah. <laughs> not just on the papers. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. The work of all our guests are provided in the episode description. And if you are interested in working with or collaborating with GLD, then head over to our website. We have a lot of opportunities out right now.